Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Sunila Dhaliwal, founder of Amplify Partners, a firm with over $700 million under management and works with companies that fit within the domains of infrastructure, dev tools, and machine intelligence. Before launching Amplify nearly nine years ago, Sunil had almost a 15-year career at Battery Ventures, one of the most tenured and successful venture firms in the world. Today's show took a different format altogether in that we decided to have a casual conversation on a wide range of venture topics, including the current state of venture, how things have evolved in the early stage ecosystem over the last five to 10 years, and what we expect to see as the major trends going forward. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of our conversation in detail. So Neil, great to have you on the show. Good to see you again, man. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. And this is going to be a fun conversation for a lot of reasons. You and I have spent a lot of time thinking about the macro market, the evolution of venture of the last decade. But before we get into that, I want to go back to when you started Amplify. You had spent 14 years at Battery, worked as an enterprise venture capitalist and lived on the East Coast. And then you came to the West Coast, started to Amplify. And what I often find when people are starting things, whether it's a firm or a company, there's a unique observation from their prior life that instructs their new journey and what they want to do. What did you learn at Battery and what was your philosophy and why did you start Amplify? Yeah, I learned an innumerable number of things at Battery. I couldn't even begin to go through that education, which was amazing. But you touched on that question of what that insight was. And there was a series of observations that I made that really came into play the last probably third of that 14-year tenure, um, which was really about changes that were happening in the market. And these were changes of macro industry. They were changes in the venture industry and they were technology industry, the venture industry, as well as in what we saw from entrepreneurs that all kind of came together to create this aha. And I always tell people that when I started Amplify, I, I had I had zero interest in actually starting a firm really as like a career goal. Battery was amazing to me, but for a whole bunch of reasons, like that ran its course. But it was the first time in my career where I actually intuitively understood what we hear from entrepreneurs all the time, which is there was this gap. It was so obvious someone had to go fill it. And that just became this really unifying idea behind, okay, this is what Amplify has to be. That observation was really around that combination of where the venture industry was doing, what the tech industry was doing, and what founders were doing. And and by that, I mean, the tech backdrop backdrop in enterprise really was about this cloud transition that was just getting started in 2010. Public cloud was really exploding. You saw a lot of infrastructure that was moving from traditional data center to being developer-focused, to being cloud-oriented. And um, the traditional playbook with all the large enterprise companies and enterprise startups was you have a founder, they work at, you know, Cisco or Oracle or IBM or Dell, and then they see some gap in the roadmap and they start that company. And then three years later, they've probably sold it back to some large company and they, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. But when you move to cloud tech and you move to distributed systems, the real hard problems were no longer enterprise problems. They were web scale problems. And the people who knew how to solve web scale problems didn't look like any of those old entrepreneurs. And we kept seeing all these really smart people who were developers or 
authors of open source projects or people who were running site reliability at Amazon or people who had been building out distributed data stores at Yahoo and Facebook. And they didn't look like the old breed. And at the same time, venture firms were still holding on to this mythology that if you didn't have the white dude, 42 long, you know, general manager of three times over, like as the business guy in the front of a technical team, the, the company was like, oh, go get yourself a, the VCs were all like, go get yourself a business guy. And so you're seeing this different founder type. You're seeing this thing that the venture world was overlooking. At the same time, remember, like venture firms had just moved out of being Three, four, four, three—you know, two, three, four hundred million dollar big firms, quote unquote, to billion dollar platforms repeatedly. So their eyes were getting bigger and moving up market and really away from what founders needed. You also just saw the founders were getting overlooked, and so like this weird combination happened where you're like, wait a second, this is this massive trend. You are the founders to go make it happen. The venture firms are getting bigger and are probably still stuck on the old model of what success looks like. How the hell is there not a firm that just shows up for technical founders? Like enterprise scale, excuse me, institutional scale, institutional capital, experienced people, but just for this persona. And, you know, fast forward eight years, and that's basically what Amplify is. You know, we live for those people. You're right. I mean, during, you know, the 2000s, we saw at least in working where I did, I saw a lot of those firms get bigger and bigger and bigger and become what I consider aircraft carrier type. And yeah, your mathematics changed dramatically. The amount you need to put per company, your ownership requirements become more rigid. But when you started, I remember in, in the early days, first fund was 40 or $50 million, which like is a traditional seed fund. We had that first generation, I remember from 2007 to 2013, that were a lot of folks that looked like that. And it was like, I'm going to fill the gap between angel money and aircraft carrier money. At that time, though, did you say, hey, like, this is like a sweet spot because you've increased your fund size. Like, I think the last fund was near 300 and you have multiple products, right? You have the opportunity fund and you have a co-invest fund. At that time, I, I, I also like to look at these origins. Did you have a clear picture of hey, this is what I think we really want to be. 40 million is kind of like our seed check, but we really can do more with the type of companies we're going after. And we are going to evolve into something that approximates a specialist that can invest across the stack. If you sat in those fund one fundraising meetings and people, every LP, I think, that's going to meet with an emerging manager always wants to ask them the question of like, what are you trying to do here? Like, what are you trying to build? And some people are rightly going to go, like Tim Connors is going to go, I'm building Pivot North to be me. And like, you're getting me and my ideas and I'll manage whatever I feel like I can manage. There is no second act. Like when I'm done, like that's, and like Tim's great at doing that. Not that a lot of people know Tim, but like that's been his approach. And I think there's other people that have approximated that. I'd never said that. I always said like, we've got a big opportunity we're going to expand into the opportunity, but we're going to stay pretty close to our knitting in terms of this stage and this sector. And we haven't changed that at all. And funny enough, you're right. Our current fund is 275, but we're 275 with five check writers. Each check writer has, on average, about 50, 55 million. My first fund was me and $50 million. My second fund was me and Mike and 125. You know, the third fund was me, Mike, Lenny, 
and David, 200. We've stayed right at about 50, $55 million per check writer across the history of the firm. And that's why we're still doing the same deals we have done. Probably a quarter of the deals now are A's, third of the deals are A's. So we're, we're a little more balanced there, but we haven't really tried to change that much. And, and I think you know this, and there's no hubris in this statement, like raising more money right now, if you have a track record and you've done well for LPs is not a problem, right? The 275 plus 100 could have easily been 700 or a billion, but it does come back to this bigger thing that I think, I know you talk to emerging managers about all the time is what do you want to do? What are you good at? Like, what is your focus? What is your spot in this market? And I think we decided early on that being an asset gathering platform was not the goal. We had a bunch of things that we loved to do. We had companies that we really enjoyed working with at certain stages. And we just wanted to be the best at that. And yeah, there's a lot of firms that of our vintage or have come later than us that are now raising 700, 800 billion dollar funds moved into their and that's and that, that could work really well for them. But I think a lot of it just comes down to like, what do you want to do when you get up in the morning? And for us, like this is the thing we love doing. And so we'll do that as best we can rather than focusing on all the other opportunities that people throw at us. Yeah. Well, we bring up a point that is, is very, very clear to me, which is right now capital is cheap, time is expensive. Things are moving very quickly. We're seeing the volume of new companies getting funded, exits. You would have never imagined this to be the case if we were sitting here in March of 2020, right? Going into the early days of the pandemic. One thing I do talk to emerging managers about is yes, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what is your sweet spot? Where does your superpower best align with your entrepreneurs that you're going after and, and the returns? for those LPs. But invariably, like I've seen this before, where as you go up in fund size, oftentimes you're going to a different weight class. And just because you were successful at a $20 million fund or 50 million, doesn't mean you're going to be successful at 200. That's how I've really thought about it because the competition is different. The value that entrepreneur is going to ascribe to what you need to deliver is going to be higher. But part of me is like, it feels like everybody's moving up in weight class together. You know, a lot of it is because the capital markets have been so heavy that the rounds are just getting bigger. And it's just everyone's playing the same game, just at bigger dollar amounts. What do you see? Like, has the game changed for you? Because even though you're the same per partner, you still have to write bigger checks. The competition is probably going to come from some of those aircraft carriers more commonly. What do you say about that? For me, the biggest transitions are when you go from being, I'm a great angel and I can get allocation and I can chip in and I can add the, you know, the common phrase is like, I'll be the highest ratio of value add to dollars. Like every, I think every small fund says some combination of that. And what's inherent in that is like me showing up will get me allocation, right? For my 50, 100, 150, 200, I can slot in, I'm everybody's friend. The first big transition you go through as a venture firm is when you're no longer everyone's friend for the weight class you're fighting in, right? Taking Amplify's money will come at the exclusion of another firm, and you have to pick. Who do you want as a lead? You can't have them both. You know, I will tell you what my ownership requirement is, or I will tell you what's worth the full force of my partnership to help you as a firm. Like, I need to be involved, and it's going to be this size check, and I'm not going to just throw some money at it. That's number one. When you make that transition as a firm, 
can you go compete for lead slots? And I always talk to both GPs and LPs about this, which is, do you believe that this individual, this strategy, this platform, this whatever is going to cross over well from being everybody's friend to being a lead? The second thing that happens is when you actually want to step out of doing seed deals and doing series A deals. And because I think most people who have a little bit of an angel track record or a seed track record and they want to go institutional, they have a rough shape and form of how seed deals work. I think for those same people to understand how series A deal work and how they play out over time, that's a different education. And granted, we came from a different experience. You know, I was at Battery for a long time. Mike was at Battery for a long time. David came from RRE, excuse me, Lenny came from RRE and Redpoint. Uh, Sarah came from Canvas. We actually had come from a heritage where actually Series A and beyond was more the norm. So I think we knew what that looked like and we knew how to do those deals. So it wasn't as much of a reach. But yeah, once you cross over into trying to now compete at a different weight class, a different round type, you have a very, very different competitive proposition on your hands. So how did we think about that? The first way that we thought about this was seed was always our roots. We always want to be the right people for technical founders to go start companies with. And I think that, again, like even through our current fund, two thirds of the deals or more that we do start at the seed stage. And that could be white sheet of paper, or it could be a little bit of product built or some variation. The series A's that we do also tend to be more of, we're going for longer dated technical projects, slightly bigger swings, a little bit more out there. They're not going to be, the metrics have been known for six months and 12 people are looking at this thing. We're kind of still going into the esoteric lands of dev tools and distributed systems and data infrastructure and and things that might not be as mainstream where we kind of have an edge because we've probably seen these projects since they've got started. We've known these founders for a long time. We know which ones are short on capital, but long on promise. And we can kind of play that a little bit. For, For people who just generally want to say, I want to raise more money and do bigger deals. I always worry that they're just walking into something they don't know how to do. You see a lot of this. What is your filter? Like, who do you think who do you think does this well, or what's a signal for you that someone is not going to make that transition well when you tell when people tell you they want to move up to a different weight class? Look, I mean, I agree with you completely. And you know, in the past, I had thought about things probably more from a mathematical standpoint of, hey, as you get bigger in fund size, the return model gets tougher. You're competing with different people. But over the last couple of years, where I've really thought about is. As you move up in weight class, you actually change the type of model and the type of venture investor you're, you're having. So sub 25 million, you can work in a model that's much more collaborative, right? So you're not elbowing people out and given the size of seed, seed rounds getting bigger and bigger, it's even easier to write a check at 250 to maybe even up to 500, but generally in the 250 range. And then you go up to, let's say, the next weight class, which is leading seed deals, smaller seed deals, maybe pre-seed seed, slightly different muscle, right? Because again, the value you need to provide or like what founders are going to look at is opportunity costs. If I let you in and lead my round at one and a half or two of a $3 million vehicle, I'm not taking money from somebody else that could provide me more value. And I, I find that that is a big chasm, not just getting to the point where you can raise the capital, but adjusting to that new reality. Then when you go to Series A, I think it's a completely different muscle, right? Because you're sitting on a board, you're thinking about 
the long-term trajectory of staying with the company and, and operating the company. And I find in general, people that are early in their you know, general careers where they've moved from an angel and operator, it takes some time to build those muscles. Not that it can't be done, but I, I caution people around jumping too fast too soon because what worked before, if you move up in weight class, just like a boxer, if you gain 30 pounds and you move up to the next weight class too quickly, you're going to get in, the ring and get slaughtered. Yeah. We've also seen the other side of this, which is uh, your example brought something to mind, which was I've seen my first couple examples where a seed manager has a piece of a company that's pretty interesting and they go, well, all these other guys come in and they pile in later than me. And and why don't I just go do that round? And so they've SPV'd basically to lead the series B and the founder is like, well, I like them. They're great. And uh, they're going to lead the Series B, and they're paying me a tremendous price. The downside of that is, you know, we're now six months or a year past that, and I'm talking to that same founder, and they're like, "Well, can you help me with this? And can you help me with this? And can you help me with this?" I'm like, "Where's that dude who just led your Series B? Like, isn't this this the sort of stuff that they should be completely all over?" And the reality is, the founders don't know that what they're getting with a double down check from someone who's never actually pushed in on those stages of business before actually never done that job before doesn't have the infrastructure the bandwidth the the muscle the experience to know how to help a company and in some cases hold a team accountable for some stuff that's a huge gap and 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 you can kind of see a little bit of the writing on the wall in some cases where you go i don't know if it works out well or if it works out poorly but i know you're not set up with every advantage that you would have if you had picked the investor that knows this stage of growth and that knows how to do this thing for you. It's something that's easy to talk about anecdotally, but I can like literally think of two or three names in my head right now where I'm like, oh, that's what's going on right now at that company. And I think it happens on the opposite side of the spectrum. As you see many of these, again, I'll go back to the analogy of aircraft carriers, billion dollar plus funds, multi-region, multi-sector going really early, right? And founders looking at, and I won't name any names, hey, I can get $4 million at a $25 million pre, and I get all the benefits of their brand and their expertise and all the people they have. And they come to find out that check is 0.4% or less of the, uh, the entire fund. And you really don't get anything, right? You just don't get any true value. And so in, in those cases, it's the opposite, where going with a smaller seed funder would provide the most value because the people that are in that seed ecosystem that are raising the smaller funds, you're a bigger piece of what they do. You're basically lining up to their weight class at your stage of development, right? So it happens on both sides. It does. And and we see that a lot. And I think um, we spend a lot of time, um, people ask us who our competitors are, and our competitors are almost always kind of best in class, large firms who understand our domains real well, more so than they are angel money or or specialists because people who are notable and strong at what they do probably have a connection or two to a large firm and they probably fit some archetype where the large firm wants to be involved in some way. And we certainly understand a lot of the FOMO that happens of like, crap, if someone else gets the seed and maybe that firm also has an A interest, we're never going to see this thing until it's series B and some crazy price. So we understand they're coming down, people coming down market. But we have time and time and time again seen a combination of 
We'll overpromise and underdeliver on what the platform can do for you. We're really, really interested. Here's the most junior person on our team that runs our seed effort. And you know, trust me, you'll get all of their time. Some cases that can be awesome, by the way. Most cases it's not. Or, or just, and I actually appreciate this one the best, which is just the straight up like, let's be really clear. Our interest is to lead the Series A. We are happy to write you this check. Here's what we can do and what we can't do. And the entrepreneur at least goes into it knowing what they're getting out of it. Now, you could argue they could have got something better somewhere else, but at least their expectations were misset. But we see one of those three things all the time. And it's really, really interesting to see that play out. Going back to the uh, the lens of the entrepreneur, I remember 15 years ago, venture was pretty straightforward. You had a bunch of Series A firms. You picked the one that you felt was the best fit. And over the last 11 years, now we have pre-seed funds and we have seed and we have post-seed and we have Series A, we have regional, we have specialists, we have studio models, we have accelerator models, you have aircraft carriers, you have everything in between and becomes so much more complex. And I had, you know, in 2013 or 14, around the time you were getting started, I wrote a blog post, which has aged really, really poorly. You know, look, I think that we're going to see some level of consolidation and you're just not going to have a thousand seed firms. And I, we're sitting here today and there's like 2,000. You wrote the blog post. I, I, I wrote it, in a, I wrote it in, a, in an annual letter to my LPs. I actually put <laughs> in there like my prediction of how many small funds we, we're, we're going to hit. We're going to hit about 70 per year and then we'll level off and then there'll be, there'll be some will go away. And I could not have been more wrong. And there's no way to foresee because I remember in 2014, 15, and 16, 17, 18, everybody that I talked to, are we in a bubble? Are things going to drop? Are the LP, is the LP capital going to dry up? And none of that's happened. And you know, today, look, we're still seeing 100 plus firms either start their firms or fundraise, hold closes. And now you have rolling funds and you have these nano funds. And I just feel like today, the venture market will continually decentralize. I think you'll always have new people come to market. It may ebb and flow based on the capital markets. Right now, the capital markets are really good. When you talk about big funds coming down, right? Like I have seen the Tiger, KOTU, and folks participate at the series seed stage. I've seen it happen. Um, we also know, I think Sequoia announced their next seed fund and other people have seed strategies and all pushing down. So that's one force. And then the other force is rolling funds, nano funds, solo GPs, angel capital that is has less friction because of platforms like AngelList and, and Carta and other things. If you think about those two ends, which one do you think is going to be more disruptive to how the current status quo is done in early stage venture? From my perspective, it's, it's the latter. The big ones coming down are going to apply pressure. But we are now seeing a world where it is just like we saw with seed, seed stage company. I mean, before there was no seed stage. Remember, when you and I started our careers, I started in 99. You probably started about a year before me, I think, at Battery. But at that time, it, like, it cost a lot of money to get product to market. You could not raise $500,000 and get a product to market. Like, you, you, know, you had to buy servers and things like that. And in today's world, it's very similar, right? The rails are there and the infrastructure is there for you to get off the ground really, really quickly as an investor. And with technology becoming so much more ubiquitous across every single industry, 
I don't see that part of the world or that part of the industry changing. I think you'll constantly see new people come in the market. And I, by the way, I think that's a good thing. It drives more diversity. It drives actually more competition in those early stage funders, which I think is a good thing for entrepreneurs. Now, some will decide after like two or three years, I don't want to do this. I'm not getting paid. The liquidity cycle is too long. The opportunity cost is too big. And those are going to fall off. And I've seen those. But it's going to be replaced by other people that come to market. I completely agree. The, uh, the other side of this is an anecdote I always, I always love to tell on this topic, which is one of the best venture capitalists I ever got a chance to learn from and watch on a board and interact with was a, a guy named Paul Ferry. Paul was the founder of Matrix Partners. There will be legends made right now, but Paul's performance in the telco boom of the late 90s, like it was unsurpassed. But but anyway, Paul was right on so many things. And I still remember him telling me, you know, Sunil, when we get on the other side of 2000, 2001, when all this craziness passes, like all these tourists are going to go away and we're going to go back to venture capital the way it was. And I was like, oh, that sounds like really wise advice. He was totally freaking wrong. He couldn't have been more wrong in his life. Things never go back to the way they were. Everything is always moving ahead. I don't know a single asset class that puts up good performance that attracts less capital the year after than the year before, right? If you fundamentally believe venture is a good place to be, that innovation and growth is going to drive economic value creation, that you're going to grow faster than GDP and tech and healthcare and life sciences, more likely than you will in shipping and mining and manufacturing. Guess what? More capital's coming. And whether that's like the state of Illinois pension fund giving KOTU another, you know, half a billion dollars to go sh shove into a private strategy, or whether it's, you know, small individual wealthy folks or retail investors finding ways to get money into the venture ecosystem, it's coming. And, and like more capital is coming. And I certainly think that the most meaningful disruption we have seen and will continue to see is the barrier for someone who wants to be an angel investor, who wants to be an individual venture capitalist, who wants to get their money and other people's money to work, monetize their network, monetize their relationships. The cost and complexity for them to do that is going to plummet. And there is going to be way, way, way more participation from, from those folks. Now, you might ask like what the implication of that is. This is like the the equivalent of, you know, you go to the you go to the liquor aisle and you're like, "How are there 85 different tequilas?" Like, which which one do you walk off with? I I still bet you're walking away from like one of six or seven things that are branded or meaningful to you in some way. Like the increase in choice actually is going to increase the importance of brand, and I believe that deeply. And so there's another interesting conundrum in there for everybody else in this ecosystem to go, okay, when more commodity capital shows up, how and why is someone going to pick you? And I actually think those are the most interesting conversations to have with GPs right now is there's a tidal wave of money coming. Everyone wants what you got. Tell me how you're going to hold your ground and stand out in the eyes of an entrepreneur. Shocking how many people do not think about that. Well, I completely agree with everything. And there are those 85 variations of tequila across pretty much every type of stage and, and specialization and eventually regions too. But you think about the other aspect, which is in the early stages, this being a battery, in the past, it was firm brand that was the most important thing. And now 
especially at the early stages, you know, it's personal brand. And you're seeing personal brand carry a lot of weight into the social profiles, the things that they've done that are unique to them. You've seen influencers start funds. Now we've created a rails where like you can have different people and you have to be much more thoughtful, especially when an opportunity cost comes in play. Like, why are these entrepreneurs going to take my money? And from an LP standpoint, it actually becomes tougher and tougher because, you know, if you like tequila, which one is the best one to pick? Now, the one thing I will say that I think will also drive this trend, one of the main themes I've seen and, and observed, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, is the mainstreaming of alternative assets. And that's from private equity to NFTs to crypto. VC has been this esoteric weird beast where people know you have to invest in the top 25% to be successful at getting venture type of returns. But the amount of private wealth has jumped to $73 trillion. There's 13% of the US is accredited investors. You have 600,000 ultra high net worth people around the world, which is like a 3x increase over the last decade. And the number of family offices have increased from 1,000 in 2008 to 11,000 today. So there's this massive amount of capital, which right now has less than 5% in alternatives versus an endowment or a pension that usually ranges in the 25 to 30% range on average. Now, some of that's because they can take on longer liquidity. But I also think there's much more opportunity to democratize access to these you know, VC funds that we have just begun to tap into and just begun to see. So I, I do think going back to why this is going to continue, like you brought it up, it's easier to start. I think there's more pools of capital that will continue to grow. And I think that like if you are long innovation, and I am, and I think we're in the fourth industrial revolution in the early days still, all of those things suggest a long-term economic expansion in the class. I think there is going to be a long-term economic expansion in the class for sure. Here's what I counter that with in my own mind. And I actually, I think you're, you're talking about the big macro wave that's going to move everything forward over five or 10 years. Here's, here's what's going to be interesting along the way. And this is where I get to add a note of caution in. When everything goes up, there's all, all these things that we're talking about work, right? Like I want to put $100,000 into the seed round because I know the Series A is going to be 3X that and 5X that. and like there's a lot of lift. When I'm a retail investor who isn't super savvy about this stuff and I have more fear of missing out, and my fear is not the fear of losing money. My fear is fear of missing out, right? It's actually the greed side of the equation they're leaning into. Um, people forget that there are periods of time where every day you wake up and it seems like it is worse than the day before, right? Everything is harder than it was yesterday. You can extract, just like you could extrapolate the upward trend when things are well, you're extrapolating the downward trend when things things are really poor. And when fear takes over, capital that is not durable, capital that is not experienced, managers who go, I'm an influencer and I have I have celebrity or notoriety and I kind of I have my day job and then I have this side hustle and I also invest and I also do this. Those are not the people who are A gonna stick with it through a downturn. They're also not the people who LPs are going to stick with when they don't have good answers. You know, those are the partnerships that are going to fracture when someone's like, you know what, I, I got enough money. It's more fun to me to like go kite surfing in Colombia than it is for me to go and sit here and work out broken companies and help founders through 
through shit when it doesn't feel like there's a big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. That is the other thing that's going to come along the way. And so rather than just imagine this uninterrupted acceleration towards prosperity for a whole bunch of new people, I think the reality is there will be hiccups. There are going to be big downturns. There are going to be periods of time where everything looks worse than it was yesterday. And a lot of people will shake out. It will, it will not change the overall trend. If this is a good place to put more money, more money will show up. I think a lot of people who want to do this as a sidelight or think it's fashionable or feel like they're, you know, it's it's fun to gamble when they can go to their cocktail party and talk about how they got marked up 5x on something and they put angel investor in their Twitter bio, like that stuff loses its appeal real quick when you're losing money. Markets are always dictated by two fundamental human psychological effects, right? It's greeted fear people on the way up, tend to rationalize very easily. You know, it's fun to win. I've been through multiple cycles now, and we've been in a, at the longest bull market we've ever seen. I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't think you know how long it's going to last. I've given up trying to prognosticate any of those things. But there is a point that we are going to move into a fear-based world, and fear-based world tends to reset everything. Like We saw that in 2008 and 2009. But again, like I always come back to you're going to have these transient periods of either euphoria or complete fear and pulling out completely. But in the long term, if you take the long term view of the class and you take the long term view of innovation, those things line up to a long term economic expansion, even if we have some short term hiccups. Totally. I've seen those experiences you know, time and time again. I still I still remember. Market, if you remember 2001, we had basically come off of a year of straight bottom falling out of internet and then telco, and, and nobody wanted to talk about tech and the dot com crash. So then 9 11 happens. And on September 12th at Battery, we funded a Series A for Vijay Manwani and David Acharya to start a company called Blade Logic, which ultimately went public and was acquired by BMC. And, you know, People of all the people from that mafia have gone off to like Snowflake and and Mongo and a whole bunch of other places. September twelfth, two thousand one was a was the day that we wired money for that. Within sixty days after that, we wired we wired money for a company called Natiza that I was on the board of that went public and sold to IBM for you know a couple billion dollars back when that was an insane exit uh, you know a decade and a half ago. But the depths of the downturn will always create opportunity, but it's it's going to be really interesting to see who has the fortitude and the interest to just sit there and do hard work when you don't wake up every morning feeling like you're the smartest person in the world because you get another markup or another exit or another something. There's plenty of periods of time where this is going to suck. And that's what I'm actually most curious about is out of this class of solo GPs, um, individuals who use brand and connectivity and their own personal networks to become good sources of deal flow, who chooses to turn that into being very dedicated, focused, supportive investors who are going to be there working problems, helping founders through all those downturns and those rough stretches versus just packing up and taking a walk? Like that, that is what I'm really keen to say. That is going to be interesting. Now, I have 
looked at this and what ends up happening during periods like this is people that are successful because rising tides lift all boats and the market has been that, you can fall into the trap of the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect where you overestimate your abilities and you kind of hang in in the game and you don't retire for a long period of time. And so, you know, if a solo GP raised in 2013 or 14, that was like the best time, by the way, like, you know, 2008 to 2013, raising your first fund, it's a very hard time to fail. I just don't know how you do it. You could not have failed had you started in that window, and including myself, right? Like as a guy who started in 2012, I know exactly what you're talking about, and you're totally right. I think that people that did start in 13, 14, and 15 that have seen such good times had probably attracted more durable pieces of capital and continue to be in it. But if you started now, and let's say the market shifts in 2022 and 23, and those markups aren't there, I think that's a very different proposition. So this is what happened in the 90s. You had a lot of people that started 93 to 96 that just absolutely killed it, right? Because you had the 98 to 2000 boom of public offerings and the boutique investment banks and the amount of liquidity they got thrown in. And then a lot of them continue to raise funds in the 2000s based on their 90s. And you look at the returns over that 2000 to 2009 timeframe for all of their vintages, and they were actually fairly terrible. Let's think about that through another backdrop that I'd love to get your take on, because you talk to LPs about this all the time. LPs tell me continuously when they're, when they're talking about the, the new emerging emerging managers. They're like, hey, have you ever heard of this person? Have you ever heard of this fund? And like, sometimes I'm like, yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I have no idea. When thinking about that class, they're always like, we have no real way of separating wheat from chaff at this point, because from our abstracted perspective, they all sound so similar. And a couple of years ago, my advice would have been like, you're not focused enough and you're not specialized enough. And you don't stand for something enough. And I think everyone's internalized that. And everyone now has their, we stand for this loud and proud pitch. And, and I'm like, okay, my advice is no longer use, useful. You have all done that, but you still all sound the same. How do you actually imagine, do, do you think that this is just like, hey, the barrier to getting 15 or 20 million is pretty low, relatively speaking, a bunch of people will get there. And then you're going to figure out who actually does something with it? Or do you think, and that money is not going to be institutional for the first 15 or 20, but the institutions are going to watch really carefully for 45 to 50 fund twos? Or do you think something else happens? Like, how, how does the capital actually figure out what to do? Well, the path that you just mentioned is really how it works. The one exception is people that are spinning out. You spin out from a batter, you spin out from an Excel, you're going to raise likely institutional capital from day one. Outside of that, you're an angel, you're an operator that doesn't have celebrity status, you are likely going to raise 15 or 20. Non-institutional is probably 80 to 90%. In fact, we did a, a survey three years ago where we found a fund once, all fund ones, 70% of the capital is non-institutional. So those are the proof of concept funds. The issue though, right, is you do that proof of concept fund, you deploy pretty quickly, and in two years, you're coming back. And in today's world, everything looks good because you've got a bunch of markups, you have some great fallen investors, and you raise a little bit more money from some of those people. Maybe you get one institution, but I think that changes when the markets change, right? So when the markets change, are you going to hang in there with non-durable capital for three funds? Because in non-durable times, i.e. another 2008 9 we saw this, I had, and I have one manager in particular who raised $15 million, was looking up to go up to 55, 
and then had to replace his entire LP base because the family offices and the tourists, accredited investors and individuals went away, right? And it took two and a half years despite really good returns. I mean, like this is a legit seed firm that is still around doing exceptionally well. I mean, what I've observed, at least from a pattern standpoint, are multiple proof of concept firms before going to, you know, sort of the institutional ones, which usually are about fund three for most, and in some cases, fund two. That's right. And that, that maps to us, by the way, like I did, even I, you, I was spinning out from a platform, 20 to 25% of our fund one was non-institutional. Even if they called themselves a family office, they were like, a family office writing a million dollar check. They were rich. They were rich families. They were not like family offices. Twenty five percent. And then I agree with your pattern. We got a lot more institutions in Fund Two because Fund One had worked well from the start and blah blah blah. But that pattern makes sense. The thing that you talked about was that idea of what institutional investors are going to do. Like when you have to turn over your LP base. The thing that I think could really be different now for managers is something you talked about earlier, which is alternative assets are not only are they more appealing from a risk return perspective in the in the popular thinking amongst like the highest level global asset allocators. We all know, like you've probably read the Cambridge paper where David Thurston argues for 40% in privates. And I'm a I'm a friend of David's. He's actually been an investor in our funds and I think he's wonderful. He's got clients with us and all that. Um, I think that that is getting more popularized. And then there's another thing that's happening, which is as you are figuring out products for retail and high net worth investors, the intermediaries are getting very aggressive about organizing ways for that money to get directed into alternatives. So what you create is, it's not quite a fund of funds, but you could have Merrill or Goldman or any large mutual fund company, these trusted, reputed asset gatherers that have relationships with retail and high net worth money are going to be comfortable for the first time saying, we are going to put a portion of your money out and we will play intermediary. And what happens in that case is if if those people are willing to engage at the earliest stages, you don't run the risk of this doctor and that dentist somehow getting cold feet. There'll be plenty of other global doctors and dentists that the Vanguard or Fidelity marketing machine can bring to bear. And you will actually create institutional support for the earliest stages of capital formation. It's about to happen. And it's not just the Merrills and Goldman's and, and the like. It is the investment platforms. iCapital has $65 billion in assets, all in private equity, right? So they bring these private equity opportunities to the wealth managers, Republic, AngelList, Fundrise. You're seeing NFT platforms. You're seeing platforms that are around things like wine company like VinoVest, right? And these actually represent asset gatherers or alternative assets, making it easier for those people, that doctor that sits in Ohio, to invest in people that they otherwise, or assets they otherwise would never had the opportunity to invest in. So like, this has been a really, really fun conversation. I have one last question for you, just because you and a lot of people listening are going to want to understand about venture and in particular, like what is some of the main things that you should think about when you get started? But I wanted to ask you, you've worked with so many great people at Battery, now at Amplify. What is the single piece of venture advice that you think 
has been most valuable to you? The most valuable venture advice, if you want to have a long career in venture that I could give you is you got to remember it is never as good as you think it is when it's going well, and it is never as bad as you think it is when it's going poorly. We are in a really long feedback loop business. And if you get super high on yourself because you have a couple wins in a short period of time, you're wrong. If you think you are terrible because for a year or two, three of your five bets are not working out the way that you think, you're also wrong. You got to be comfortable doing what you think the right thing is over an extended period of time and letting the actual cycle of evidence, right? Multiple companies running through their entire life cycle tell you whether or not you're doing the right or the wrong thing. And it's really dangerous to want to move too quickly one way or another. That, that idea of state management you know, becomes really, really important. And that's really different for a lot of people coming into this. If you've been an angel investor in an upmarket or you're an operator and a, and a guy who really loves, like you love putting teams together and going from one to zero. And it's been an amazing year. We crushed so many goals. Like you got to be able to look past that if you want to have a long, long run adventure. A lot of people forget that, especially in the world of immediate gratification and you want things to happen really quickly, but it takes a long time. You know, carry takes a long time. I mean, you saw a company like Roblox, you know, go public. And when was that company founded? This is way, way back, 15 years plus, right? So it takes a long time. And I think that's a great piece of advice that in today's market, you just don't necessarily think of as much. But this has been awesome, man. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Look forward to, uh, to continuing the conversation. Thanks again. It's always a pleasure to catch up. Thanks for having me on. As always, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sunil. To learn more about him and Amplify Partners, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes in the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode as soon as it's released.